0: Welcome to the Thinking Practitioner Podcast,
1: a podcast where we dig into the fascinating issues, conditions, and quandaries in the massage and manual therapy world today.
0: I'm Whitney Lowe.
1: And I'm Teluca. Welcome
0: Welcome to to the the Thinking Thinking Practitioner. Practitioner. Hi, this is Whitney Lowe, and thanks for joining us on the Thinking Practitioner Podcast, where Books of Discovery has been part of the massage therapy education world for over 20 years. Thousands of schools around the world teach with their textbooks and digital resources. And in these trying times, this beloved publisher is dedicated to helping educators with online friendly digital resources that make instruction easier and more effective in the classroom or virtually. Books of Discovery likes to say, learning adventures start here. They see that same spirit here on the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and they're proud to support our work, knowing we share the mission to bring massage and bodywork community enlivening content that advances our profession.
1: Check out their collection of e-textbooks and digital learning resources for pathology, kinesiology, anatomy, and physiology at booksofdiscovery.com, where thinking practitioner listeners save 15% by entering thinking at checkout. How you doing, Whitney?
0: Very well today, uh, sir. How are you doing? Excellent. Good to have you Excellent. back here. I was uh, off and I missed you deeply last week.
1: You were solo. Thanks for doing that.
0: Yeah, I had a good talk with uh, Jamie Johnson and Eric Purvis from Canada. and uh, But we missed having you there and uh, great to see you back. You've been rafting from what I understand, right? Down the rafting
1: river. down the Green River in Utah. Uh, rafting upwind, it turns out. So my biceps got a real workout. Paul All Kelly, right. I was totally thinking of you uh-huh. on that trip, but uh, it was fun to be away. So thanks for covering for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And we're not, uh, we're not alone today. We have a exciting guest. All right. Let's hear about it. Uh, Todd Hargrove, thanks for being with us. You have a blog and podcast of your own, Better Movement. I, I'll say a little bit about it. We actually haven't met until this now. But I heard your name a long time ago. Someone said, Till, you should meet this guy, Todd. He's got some background in rolfing, and he thinks different, like you're thinking different or something like that. I said, okay, that sounds cool. And then it was Greg Lehman who first uh, said even more. He talked about how you were giving him a hard time for being a movement nihilist, which I thought was a really interesting (laughs) and good point. Yeah. And so then, yeah, I've never actually had the chance to catch up with you, so I'm excited to talk to you. You actually wrote a fun little article about uh, neuroinflammation and the concept there of, I'll let you talk in a second, but the concept there of the neuroimmune system is really fascinating how, at least this is my take, I want to hear yours, but the take of how the uh, immune system and the nervous system uh, work together and are both parts of say a bigger whole, a bigger function. That's basically about protection. And that might even include social behaviors and such. Uh, but anyway, that's my, that's my interest. That's what people interest. And in. you touched on a couple of those things in your article about neuroinflammation. So uh, now that I've said all that, what do you want to, us to know about you before we dig into some of those things?
2: Well, first uh, first that I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I've heard your name for a long time too, and I've met Whitney before, but first time uh, meeting you. Uh, yeah, so I do have a background in rolfing. i have, I've going all the way back. I have a background of being an attorney. I was doing that for about 10 years, and then I started to experience some chronic pain, which got me interested in the body and why, why it might be hurting, and I, I was already kind of interested in the body from Playing sports and uh, that got me kind of interested in movement. Both of those things, because around the time I was getting into, you know, this stuff was around 2005. There was a lot of athletic trainers that were talking to physical therapists, and physical therapists that were talking to athletic trainers. And kind of the idea was that you know the way you move is related to the way you feel, and I just I just found that really interesting. And uh, I at the same time I was looking into kind of like yoga and kind of martial arts kind of stuff and different functional training things. And I got a session of rolfing done uh, by a guy named Brad Jones here in Seattle. And, uh, you know, I I, I had a great experience doing that. And anyway, you know, long story short, I started to move a lot better. I started to feel a lot better. Uh, I got interested enough in in the whole thing that I was like, I'd rather do this than be an attorney. So I went to school to learn how to be a rolfer in 2005. Uh, shortly after that, I, I went to, uh, did some extra training to be a Feldenkrais practitioner. So I've been doing both of those things, kind of practicing in kind of my own kind of rolfing ish Feldenkrais ish way for, I guess, about 15 years seeing people here in Seattle and also doing some writing, uh, on a blog at better movement. And now Todd Hargrove at Substack and, uh, writing a few books and, you know, coming into contact with other people like you guys and talking and geeking out and,
1: Cool. Well, we'll make sure we get links to all that stuff in the show notes. But that's that's great to get a picture of your course into this stuff. And what a interesting combination of uh, influences. And you did the Rolf training first and then went and trained as a Felton Christ practitioner. That's a small set of people that includes some of my mentors. I mean, my own, uh, I trained with Thomas Hanna. About the same time I was training with uh, students of Ida Rolfs at the Eslin Institute in the 80s. So that was always a big influence in uh-huh. my, my thrust as well. So it's interesting. Yeah, well, there's
2: Schleip that. too, Robert Schleip. When I was, uh, exactly. when I was at school, I, that's when I first came into contact with his work. And, and that I found influential. I mean, he's a Feldenkrais guy. And right. his idea that you know what we're doing with Rolfing is kind of like, you know, actually to use the phrase, I think by, Yo Cannon and Rye Warren, who's, who's uh, one of Feldenkrais's students. He said that what we're doing here is about information, not deformation. And that was kind of like uh, Schleip's Schleip's uh, idea as well, is that when we're putting an elbow on somebody, it's not about melting and deforming and, and as much as it is sending information and asking for permission. And that idea, uh, is kind of like what's that paradigm is really kind of the way I've thought about you know body work and and different types of movement work. And that's what kind of led me to to really thinking about the nervous system. Yeah really, really thinking about the nervous system. And it was kind of later that uh, I came to appreciate a little bit more that hey, the immune system works really, really, really closely with the nervous system. And so this idea of neuroinflammation is kind of like expanding out from that base of, of thinking a lot about, you know, the nervous system. Well, tell us, tell
1: us some more about how you got interested in it, why you took the time to write a blog piece about it. And, uh, you know, especially uh, how it relates to manual therapy. We'll get into that too, as we go along, if you like.
2: Yeah. So you, you so, um, you know, back to the neuroimmune system idea, you know, what, what I became interested in with chronic pain. Well, I mean, the first, my first. Idea of why something hurts that I had when I was hurting and when I first got started practicing is there's something wrong with the body. You know, oh. so like if your knee hurts, there's something wrong with the knee. If your back hurts, there's something wrong uh, with your back. And that's not necessarily wrong, but it's only part of the story. Part of Something wrong being like damage or being. Yeah, I mean, like damage. Like what? if there's something wrong okay. with your knee, there's damage something in the knee. There's something wrong with their back, there's damage in, in, in the back. But Uh, You know, as as I learned more, oh, it's also about the sensitivity of the nervous system, how it's reading information from that area, and it can be sensitized and kind of like read more threat than is actually there. I found that idea very interesting. And, uh, you know, you study more and you realize that a lot of what's getting the nervous system sensitive is the activity of the immune system, you know, like very obviously One obvious idea would be peripheral inflammation. So if you're inflamed in your knee, that's sensitizing the nociceptors in the knee and changing the sensitivity of the nervous system. But uh, you can also have inflammation within the nervous system, within the central nervous system. That's basically what neuroinflammation means is uh, inflammation in the central nervous system. And that can change the sensitivity of the nervous system as well.
1: So, uh, yeah, that's an important distinction. I just want to underline for a second there. You're talking about how peripheral inflammation, like in your knee, can sensitize the nociceptors there, the nerve endings there, so they generate more signal, perhaps, or the signal threshold is lower, whatever it is. But then you're making the distinction saying, like, in the central nervous system, that could be going on, too. There could be inflammatory mechanisms at work that make us just more sensitive overall, as well as maybe more reactive.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, part of what I learned is that, you know, in the, uh, in the brain, for example, only about uh, something like 10% of the cells, there are neurons that, you know, are, are conveying the electrical information. Many, many, many of yeah. them are the glial cells. Right. Um, and they're kind of holding the neurons in place and giving them nutrition and helping with transmission and repairing damage and stuff like that. And they play a role in, in helping the neurons do what they do. They might be involved in um, learning and memory. Again, they can sensitize the, the transmission of uh, nociception and, you know, there's a balance there. They do, they're, they're doing, you know, they, they have a, you know, important role to play in keeping everything healthy there. Some of them are microglia that are kind of like looking for infections and repairing damage and always like surveying their environment. So immune, when-
1: immune cells of the brain as it were.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but when they get, you know, excessive what they're doing, just like the inflammation throughout the body, inflammation plays a you know valuable role in clearing infections and, uh, you know, repairing damage, it can become chronic. It can become more excessive than it needs to be to get the job done. And that can play a role in bad health, you know, in the periphery and in this same applies to the, to the uh, central nervous system. So I'm curious, Todd, when you say uh, the
0: inflammation within the central nervous system causing sensitization elsewhere, would we tend to see that show up as like overall greater sensitivity to all kinds of sensory stimuli throughout the body or like, let's say, you know, a person's knee hurts and maybe there's some relationship there with you know, neurogenic inflammation or within the nervous system, uh, the, the, where that inflammation is occurring, does that tend to show up in broader areas when it's, you know, within the whole nervous system, as opposed to like a small local peripheral uh, instance?
2: Yeah. I understand that, uh, that what's, you know, the, the central sensitivity that can happen at the dorsal horn is partly mediated by the activity of glial cells around there. Mm -hmm. I should point out that I'm not that this, this, all of this, um, uh, discussion of the immune cells and and, and all this physiology is super complex, and I'm just kind of starting to learn about it. And there's a you know you read one of these papers on uh, you know neuroinflammation, and you encounter you know 10 and 20 and 30 uh, descriptions of different kinds of cells that are involved, like the IL6, yeah. and the IL7, and up to IL10, and all of them do slightly different things. So it's an enormously complex uh, system. Uh, And I'm just kind of scratching the surface here in in terms of like my knowledge of like what's going on at the, at the micro level. Mm -hmm. And I think of this as kind of like an interesting uh, piece of a uh, part of a larger picture, uh, which is that, you know, the nervous system works with the immune system, works with the endocrine system in protecting the body. And there's just a wide variety of bad feelings we can have that are associated with, One or more of these systems getting overprotective?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You on a recent episode of your podcast had a really good interview with Bronnie Thompson, where you were talking about fibromyalgia and some of those other widespread body pain problems, possibly being somewhat linked to some of these concepts and ideas. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, that's right. That that one of the interesting things about neuroinflammation and the reason why I say it's kind of like it, it's a, you know, if you were going to look at any one kind of micro piece of this big picture, that I think is easier to understand uh, that micro piece would be neuroinflammation keeps showing up. If you look for it in the brains of people who have a wide variety of chronic complex health conditions, like chronic pain, fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, um, cognitive problems like dementia, uh, it, it, it's just, it, it keeps being there wherever you look for it, kind of like the way chronic inflammation is there in a lot of different chronic health problems that are more uh, peripheral in nature. Mm-hmm. And it's something that starts to catch your attention after a while. It's kind of a common player, or a common currency in these things. And I think that we should kind of have our eye out for that term and be looking for it. Because once you start looking for it, you'll be seeing it. In, in lots of different places.
1: Yeah. Well, just let's not miss the chance to clarify some of those signs. I mean, you you named a few conditions there that we're really starting to wonder or suspect or see that your inflammation can play a role in. But what are some of the other uh, signs or client uh, complaints or issues that you'd say? Oh, maybe that's one of the mechanisms at work here.
2: Well, I think those ones that I just met, uh, just mentioned are are uh, the ones that I know about it. But when you when you see uh, clients that have um, conditions that have been going on for a long time, not easily explained or reduced to a particular diagnosis, but you know they've been to a lot of doctors. Uh, they're wondering what it is. Their uh, symptoms seem to come and go without rhyme or reason. Maybe the symptoms seem to be related to a traumatic event that happened, yeah. uh, either emotional or physical. Yep. Or it happened after a serious infection. There you go. Or if there's autoimmune components involved, uh, if there's anxiety or depression involved. You, it, you know, if you see a lot of people who have had problems for a while and they're not sure what they are, it's, it becomes more and more likely that they have one of these conditions. And anytime you have one of these conditions, it greatly increases the chances of having some of these other conditions. So they all kind of run together. You know, some of them are more recognizes a disorder of the nervous system so one one might be more about the immune system like autoimmune one might be kind of like an endocrine system thing uh, but all these systems really talk to each other and the regulation what one being in a regulated balanced state is necessary for the others to be as well which is which is maybe why all of these conditions can be kind of comorbid
1: and with the common thread being the probable inflammation inflammatory activity in the nerve central nervous system, increasing the sensitivity and the reactivity of those responses. And with pain being one of those uh, signs. So mm-hmm. pain out a proportion to a stimulus perhaps, or reactivity out of proportion to uh, the noxious stimulus.
2: Yeah. Been- yeah. Or, or uh, fatigue at a proportion to the amount you're exerting yourself or worrying out of proportion to the amount mm-hmm that there's really something to worry about or being sad more than more than a normal person would be sad under the circumstances. Those are all, uh, I, I like to think about all the different ways that the, the body can protect itself from perceived harm. And when you're uh, one of them is sleeping, when you've, you know, your body's always protecting itself against running out of energy. And so it needs to, to make you tired and make you go to sleep when it perceives that energy stores are low. Uh, it needs to make, you know, pain is there to get you to stop moving and protecting something anxiety and worry and low mood are there to get you to start thinking about how to, how to solve problems. And all of those protective mechanisms can start to become, you know, maladaptive and overprotective. And, and anytime you look at one of them, you see neural inflammation, uh, involved. So I'm curious too,
0: this is, you know, it's, it's a fascinating physiology to delve into this. And, you know, those of us who are kind of geekly interested in this kind of stuff can really get, you know, down a rabbit hole with it. But from a, uh, like a day-to-day clinical perspective for the, the practitioners who are out there in the trenches doing stuff, are there any real key indicators or signs or or symptoms that you can describe as something that would point to a greater, uh, involvement of something like neuroinflammatory activity within the central nervous system or something?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, when people have pains that are not well localized, mm-hmm. they move around, uh, they're just not well correlated with what you would suspect would be tissue damage in an area. Now, I mean, like that, like if someone comes in and say, I, I twisted my ankle last week and, uh, it hurts right in that exact spot now. And it hurts when I move it like this, then that's the, like maybe the prototypical example of a pain. That's obviously related to a local tissue damage problem. Yeah. But when you've got pains or that tissue around, sensitivity
1: problem, at least yeah.
2: Or tissue sensitive. Yeah. But when you've got the pains that move around and they're also connected yeah. to psychosocial issues and they're connected to energy level issues. Uh, if they're conne- if there's also core morbidities of the kinds that I just talked about with the anxiety and the depression and the autoimmune disease, that's when I start to suspect we've got more kind of a systemic dysregulation uh, type of a situation. And it gets me thinking uh, much less about targeting that local area where it hurts and much more about general health
1: nice. um,
2: and just kind of helping people troubleshoot and strategize and think about ways in which they might be able to improve their general health. And the obvious things here are, the way you sleep, the way you eat, the way you exercise, reducing stress, uh, optimizing your weight, uh, avoiding toxins like alcohol, drugs, and pollution. You just gave the
1: punchline to the whole joke. Okay. <laughs> 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 That's what all this is building up to. I know, but let's let's back let's back it off, uh, back it out a little bit, and keep looking at. Uh, what goes on there? Because and I do want to make really clear that distinction between, say, chronic pain uh, in general or other kinds of you know pain syndromes, and neuroinflammation, which might be just one you know explanatory factor or mechanism. There, they're different, but we're kind of talking about them as if they're similar. There are a lot of similarities, but that classic distinction you mentioned too, like a pain that moves around, that's that, that's such a clear example sometimes to sometimes to clients or patients too that. Well, maybe it isn't just the tissue that's part of this.
2: Yeah, if something and only- hurts
1: and then it changes quickly. Wow, maybe it, maybe it wasn't because the tissue was injured after all. Maybe it was more of a sensitization or nervous system phenomenon.
2: Yeah, and they they can understand that. I mean, part of part of helping people who have you know what I would think of as being this more systemic, general health issue. Part part of helping them is helping them understand that that's what it's about. And tons of them, a lot of them will. I mean, they they've been to a lot of doctors and they. have uh, you know, they know that, that something is going wrong besides just, you know, uh, something being out of place somewhere. Well, uh, yeah.
1: And what you're saying, though, is, is really important. You're asking us to think generally about general symptoms. You're asking us to think systemically about system, uh, symptoms rather that seem to be transitory, move around, influence the whole way someone's feeling.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think there's kind of like two mindsets. I mean, there's certain types of problems, which are, which are complicated problems, which are the kinds of problems that uh, uh, mechanics fix in cars. So someone's got a, a problem with their car, it's making a noise, it's not running, you take it in, and the mechanic is able to identify the one thing that's wrong, use their special tests, and identify that one factor out of the many different interrelated factors in that engine, which is go- going to problem and then intervene on that uh, one thing in relative isolation to all the other things and clients come in and they want that. Uh, and we want to do that as therapists as well. And occasionally we can do that when they've got that really peripheral type of a problem, but when they've got the type of a problem, which is more systemic, which is more about dysregulation, which is more about the way many, many, many different things are relating to each other. The problem is more like, you know, I like to think in terms of analogies of Maybe like, you know, what's going wrong in our society with polarization? What's the one thing that's wrong there? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's that's a dynamic problem. That's lots of things. If you intervene on any one part of that system, you probably won't solve the whole problem. And the system's just gonna just gonna you know stabilize in whatever you know kind of attractor state that it's in. And, and complex health problems can be like that. So you shift your mindset to much more higher level. You know, not the micro level, but kind of like the higher level general health kind of stuff.
1: Well, it's, I mean, you mentioned mechanics. And so I got to weigh in there because I was a mechanic for a while. And I didn't know that. Yeah, in college. I worked my way through college as a a foreign car mechanic with a fuel injection specialty. Cool. Can I bring my car over to you? (laughs) Uh, We can talk. but But here's the deal. Not even that is cause and effect is linear is mechanical. Mm-hmm. I mean, any, any good mechanic can tell you all sorts of strange stories that are clearly systemic or system phenomenon going on. Really? Yeah. Oh yeah.
2: My God. Interesting. Yeah. I got to stop using it. I got to maybe change my example there.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's a flat tire and you got a nail, you take it out. It's clear. <laughs> no. But uh, we, as practitioners, we want to find that nail. We always want the one thing as a, and the clients or patients want that too. They want to, know what is that problem? But in a case of a flat tire, it might be clear, but especially when you start getting into engines and uh, electronics involved, it's a complex situation that can be multi-causal and multi-variable. And to tease that apart involves that kind of higher thinking you're thinking about, or at least a backing off away from looking for the one cause and the one fact and being open to more systemic influences. They're sometimes even just as simple, but are a bigger picture.
2: I think it kind of zooming out, zooming out my perspective. I like to kind of be aware of, of what, you know, when I'm, there's so many different ways to look at pain. And I, one of the distinctions I like is sometimes you're looking at a micro level. You're looking at what's happening with cells, like some, some of what you can study with neuroinflammation inflammation, and some is the really zoomed out person level where you're thinking about the person's mood or their intentions or, or things like that And it's kind of nice to know where you are in your Zoom level and kind of know how to toggle back and forth.
1: And to understand that all these things are connected. You talked, you know, the emotional states are another part of the protective or reactive uh, system that we have. You're describing that. I mean, we got the nervous system, which helps us change our behavior around pain. If it's hot, we pull our finger out of the fire. We got the immune system, which changes behaviors of cells and fluids and signaling devices inside of our body to protect us in different ways. And then we have, you know, I mean, I don't want to go too far with this. You mentioned polarization, but you have the social immune idea too, which uh, has some interesting things to say about xenophobia or ways we perceive other or even civilization as a, an infectious disease mechanism, control mechanism. yeah Yeah.
2: well the whole covid thing's a great analogy for uh you know what the body freaking out when there's a major infection or there's there's some sort of major trauma all these different protective systems get activated one tends to hype up the others and there's this positive feedback loop and that creates the emergency response yeah uh for better for worse and then And then there's kind of there can be a PTSD thing, too, when, you know, what's supposed to happen when after these protective systems get activated is that they should take care of the problem. And then there should be an all clear signal issued by the system, which tells all all these protective systems when to start calming down again. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's there's going to be a time hopefully soon when we don't need to wear masks, but a lot of people will continue to wear them because they've got some kind of a PTSD. And that happens in the body, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Todd, I'm curious for your thoughts on this, too, in terms of trying to find some resolution for some of these kinds of issues. What you said a moment ago, you and Till were talking about the the mechanic analogy, and it got me thinking, too, in terms of the way that the healthcare system is set up, at least in our country and in a number of other countries as well, to Mm -hmm. look for those really narrowed down fine problems so that you can have a particular diagnostic code and get your insurance reimbursement for that. And that also leads the treatment For those problems to become, in many instances, I think, overly narrow, focused on one particular type of site or problem, which may be only a piece of the more global picture. And what I wonder is it seems like a lot of these other, sort of, if we call them alternative practices, which involve, you know, all the stuff that we do, you know, massage therapy, body work, you know, Rolfing, Feldenkrais, all those kinds of things, which are more global. interventions which might address a number of different parts of the body simultaneously trying to look at more big picture treatments. Is that one of the reasons maybe that these kinds of approaches tend to be more effective with some of these kinds of things than a lot of the other approaches that are more narrow because a lot of people are quite dissatisfied with what happens in the traditional healthcare system trying to get these kinds of things addressed?
2: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. If you go to the alternative uh, healthcare people, they tend to be more you know, quote, holistic, they look at more high level things, they're more integrative thinkers. Uh, and then when you get the, the medical science, they tend to be more under the microscope, it's a little bit more reductionistic. And, you know, there's trade offs from those two different perspectives. When you when you look at something on the microscope, you can be extremely precise, and measure exactly what's going on and be very confident that, you know, what you're describing is is the reality and the higher, higher level, more complex entities you look at, uh, there's kind of less precision. It's, it's harder to measure what's happening. There's so many variables. You can't measure them all. You use kind of amorphous terms to describe what's going on, like perception of threat or, or, yeah. uh, and, and uh, you use more kind of metaphors to understand what's going on. And, you know, you gain the advantage of seeing more of the picture, but you're seeing the whole picture in less resolution and with less measurement and precision. So um Yeah. When that, when that reductionistic biomedical perspective fails, that's when people go to alternative people who are going to have no problem talking about how thought is related to emotion is related to the immune system is related to what you eat and all this kinds of stuff. And that might not be so easy to measure and make sense of when you're, when you're going for the biomedical science, but I I think these two different levels need to talk to each other as much as possible so they can help each other with the strengths and weaknesses.
0: Yeah. A whole lot more. Yeah, I get getting out of our silos and, and learning some, some multiple uh, languages and interaction skills for sure.
2: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And there's so much uh, that is being done and so many ways that the the those conversations are happening. I mean that what you described there is the kind of classic stereotypical siloing of our complementary or conventional ways of looking at things. But I just remember going through my own chronic health condition with Lyme disease and saw dozens of pra- uh, chronic Lyme disease saw dozens of practitioners and then looking back after it finally resolved for me it was there was not a clear distinction between conventional and uh, complementary in terms of how they dealt with me as a person person or with my emotions some of the most emotionally inclusive practitioners were the most conventional interestingly mm-hmm. enough yeah. And some of the most dogmatic or reductionist ones were the most "quote" alternative as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting.
1: Yeah, so it is—it's something like you said about the willingness to look, back, take a step back, and think. There could be lots of factors here, including the way does people feel and think about it and behave, as well as these very clear biomechanical yeah. mechanisms.
2: Well, yeah. Well, another thing about the way people feel and think and behave, and that just relating to people on the person level. That's one of the most actionable levels, right? So, I mean, yeah. if you're relating to someone as a person, not only are yes. you understanding the role that emotions and thoughts play and how they're doing, well, I mean, you're you're working at the level where you where you might actually be able to affect them and affect their behavior. And that's, you know, mm-hmm. you can measure what's going on under the microscope, but that doesn't tell you how to change behavior. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah,
1: <laughs> lots there, lots mm-hmm. there. I mean, you're I mean, you're just making me think about all the interests now and say co-regulation and you know porridge's work about how the it's the connection that helps us regulate our autonomic state etc anyway that's wasn't what the conversation was going to be out be about but that's where my mind just went for sure
2: yeah 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 i mean when i when i and like the, this idea of um, uh there being excessive levels of protection yeah. that, that's it's something that informs a lot of uh your interaction because kind of like as as a baseline idea with someone that i'm working with is that i want them uh i I just want to give them as much good good news as possible about about their body you know any anything you know based in the truth not based in in false promises or lies or anything like that but if Mm -hmm. they if they have some range of motion that they didn't know they have i want them to know that it's there if they have some reasonable hope that something can get better when they don't currently have that hope. I want them to know that, you know, for example, you've got the people I've got the knee of a 70 year old, I can't run. I've got good news for you. I don't think that's true. Let's talk about the science about that. Mm -hmm. Or people who think that they, they can't bend their back in a certain way. And you can kind of like show them that that's possible. Or you could just show them that someone cares about them and and you know and is going to listen to their problems is just something they might not know unfortunately even after have been to a lot of medical professionals before yeah and just all of that good news is just a way to lower threat you know one way or the other to me that's like a baseline thing we can do
1: you're talking about that the basic uh way of mirroring or reframing people's experience back to them in a way that actually could uh, help them shift the way they think about it as being okay as opposed to being flawed or damaged. Yeah. You're talking yeah. And you're talking too about building capacity and building uh, trust and resilience in people's own capabilities, their own, you know, sense of what they have. Yeah. But this is and really you know, I mean, it's so subtle what comes through because I mean it's in our tradition as Rolfers, it's such it was so it was so common to feel something, go, oh yeah, feel that. Oh jeez basically saying, you know, in all 15 different ways, you're messed up here. Oh, yeah. You know, oh yeah, feel that. Oh, God, geez. Um, you know, we're going to deal with that or whatever, you know, which has always been one of my pet peeves having been on the receiving end of that and going, well, what's he feeling? Oh God, I know it's messed up there.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Well, that's kind of like giving people bad news, I guess, but you could say you could draw people's attention to the good things that are going on in the body yeah. that they might not have noticed, you know, like, nice. like that, uh, that kind of thing as well. Absolutely. And you can also kind of like communicate to people that here's something that my clients very, this information might be useful from time to time is that, um, you know, they want to take care of this physical problem they've got in their body. And they, uh, I mean, everyone knows that sleep's good for you. Everyone knows that you're not supposed to do drugs and stuff like that. But if they understand that there may be more connection between these things Uh, then they can maybe be more motivated to work on those types of things. So I've had some people that are like, for example, uh, uh, you know, they're not doing their daily walk. You know, they, I used to like to walk a lot. I don't really have time for it now. I liked it because I got out in nature and I, and it was a little bit of exercise every day. And sometimes they're interested to know, you know what, putting that half an hour walk, back in every day might be part of solving the problem that you've come to me to get solved which you didn't realize was connected to things like walking because <laughs> mm-hmm. these things are connected it's, do you think uh, that
0: the um the challenge of trying to get some of this kind of stuff across really needs subtleties and fine points of communication that are, are oftentimes not polished in many of the practitioners who might be Seeing a lot of these people, I mean, it it seems like one of the challenges that I hear and notice a lot is is sort of unskilled attempts at trying to give lifestyle advice and and guidelines and things like that in ways that that is empowering for people, but not you know either blaming them or putting them into a pathological mindset and that kind of thing.
2: Yeah, if there's a lot of there's definitely a lot of skill there, and you can develop it a lot. But uh, you know, everyone's got people skills that you know sometimes we we get confused by, by thinking, you know, I've got to be a psychologist or something like that, but we're all people and we've all got tons amount of people skills more than others. But I, I do think that there that one common mistake that gets made that I certainly made a ton is the, just like you said is the kind of the blaming and the thinking that they just need more information. And I think once you learn something about kind of motivational interviewing, that really kind of can set you straight. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Just so that, that more ind- indirect approach. Mm-hmm indirect approach can you give an example can you say
2: well it's just i mean you know most for example like um, you know most people uh, are not um overweight because they don't understand that being overweight's bad for their health so i mean you can't you can't help uh-huh. people by saying hey do you know what that's really unhealthy or, right or you know you can't say hey you know what the, the, you'd you'd be healthier if you exercise and stuff like that so you Yes, you kind of have to ask, and you can't just give people certain motivations and change their behavior. You've got to work with wherever, uh, whatever their current level of motivation and and behavior is, and understand that change is hard, and it only happens with um, you you know a a certain amount of uh, commitment. And some people, you've got to kind of sense when people are ready to change and what direction they're maybe already wanting to move to change. And you know, you can they're like a ship that's moving in a certain direction. You can only altered a little bit. So you need to know where it's going.
1: And that, that implies an appreciation for all the factors behind why it's going the way it is and a sense of timing and a sense of, I mean, I, one of my own personal working assumptions is that it's not as hard as we think it is. And that's just a helpful assumption that I try to live from in my own sense.
2: Yeah, I think it's, you know, it's it's like there's something about complex problems that suggests simple common sense solutions. Yeah. That we that's kind of stuff that we already know and you know sometimes the clients kind of already know this stuff too but they've gotten distracted by looking for, you know like what you said before the nail in the tire, that yeah. really fancy complicated answer. And so they're kind of ignoring those more kind of basic general health interventions, which might maybe should be the focus of attention.
1: Okay, so how do we help people? Here's here's the working question I work with too. How do we help people with those basic health considerations, sleep, diet, activity, stress, probably a fifth in there, with, uh, as manual therapists, with, from the assumption that it can actually be simple and straightforward and within our scope of practice, we don't, I mean, there's enormously complex and sophisticated ways of doing that. But yeah. there's also got to be really simple, direct, clear, and within scope ways. What do you think?
2: I think the the biggest lever you've got is um, uh, just the information that these things could be part of your solution.
1: Information, okay.
2: So, I mean, I've got most of my clients that, that get to me, this is just my kind of client, are very well, well-resourced people, educated uh, you know, they've got money, they shop at whole foods, they're interested in health. They're already sold on all this stuff being good for them. Yeah. So this just, so that type of person probably better resource than a lot of people in the, being able to do that. Probably a lot. There, there's a ton of people in the world that don't have the time, don't have the energy to be able to all of a sudden start exercising or eat better or, or have, or have the money to do that or anything. So it totally depends on the person, but there are some people that are kind of like ready willing and able to make some sort of change like this if they only mm-hmm. know that there's a good reason to do it and yeah. maybe you could help give them that good reason that would be the easiest way to help someone
1: and sometimes when they realize that they can be part of the solution too
2: yeah exactly actually, <laughs> exactly
1: there's some simple, simple things you could do like oh take a walk that actually might be related to what you're talking to me about
2: yeah yeah and 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 um, you know even easier than you know fixing the problem by taking a walk would be learning about the problem by, by taking a walk and just seeing how you feel. I, like it. I have a lot of people that are like, you know, I used to feel better, you know, whenever last year, and then I've gained from the history. You know what you told, I remember you told me you were walking a ton last year and you had to stop that because of, you know, you'd lost your dog or you, your job or something like that. I'm curious okay. what, what, how you'd feel if you started walking again.
1: Mm-hmm. Whitney, do you see what he did? He just moved the goalpost a little bit, though. Uh huh. He just They wanted a flat tire fix, and he just uh, yeah. turned them into, what, what uh, investigators into their own symptomology.
0: Yeah. That well, seems like, too, a, a really interesting segue. We should have had this discussion right after our interoception uh, piece that we did, because there seems like there's a lot of that um, going on there, a heightened degree of tuning, tuning into what they're feeling and how, how that's related what they're feeling, but also
1: just reflecting on it. Oh yeah, I did feel better after that walk. Jeez,
0: yeah.
2: heck,
1: catching that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the thing about a complex health problem is that almost anything can potentially make it worse. And people start to realize that when they've, you know, they, they, they've they, they, become sensitive people and then any disturbance in their environment starts to, they realize that that can bother them. They realize that sleeping in the wrong bed or, or you know, eating the wrong foods can, can flare them up. Well, that means that, Uh, there's many, many, many different things that can make them feel better too. And it's complex. It's individual. They're the only one that's going to be able to learn what these things are. And so I want to make them curious uh, about all these different influences and start exploring them, feel, figure out which, which factors matter, which ones don't. Yeah. And because those are all under their control too. What do you
1: get? What do you two think about the idea that we are in some ways models that we just by who we are inspire a certain approach or being or you know way of being with our own bodies for example is that like
0: well i think yeah clearly people look to us to be those models um for them whether or not we kind of see ourselves that way or intend to i think it's just it's a natural process of somebody when you're going to seek care from some individual that you're looking to them to be some type of a model of better care and better health that you would want to aspire to.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I, some of my clients, my story is there that I used to be in a lot of pain and now I'm not. And, you know, sometimes I'll frame uh, what I think they might try to do in terms of like what I would do. Like I might say something like, "I I don't know if this is a good idea, but I'll, I'll very often say, you know, if I were in your position, I would be curious about, how strength training would help that shoulder. Like if I had this problem, that's one of the first things I'd try. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know if it would work, but you know what I mean? I don't don't know if that's a good way to talk about it, but sometimes I will talk that way.
1: Sounds good to me. Yeah. Yeah, Sounds good to me. Well, it puts you in the equation that you're owning it and uh, you're offering it as an option for them to try and own if they want to. I mean, I'm just always aware too that when people finally do find a place in my schedule, pay my fee, get to see me, come to see me, that they've already invested a bunch into their own feeling better. They've already performed a bunch of the setup for this important ritual we do, getting people on our tables and working with them. And that's it's such an honor almost to be the. Um, I almost think about it like I'm not a football guy, so I'm probably going to blow the analogy. But the guy that comes and picks, kicks the field goal, you know, it's all been set up, and I just show up and do that one thing that it you know gets the point or whatever. But uh, there's
2: so many other factors there. And disrespectful for the football kicker. you're disrespecting yourself and the kicker. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and for him as long as you make the kick
2: too. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the kid that guy, that kid you know that guy can be a, you know. The hero the or the goat. goat.
1: Yeah. <laughs> There's, maybe it's a bad analogy then, because you're right. Yeah. <laughs> then it turns it down to either making the kick or not. And sometimes mm. it is just the being together and just the uh, hanging out in a cool situation and feeling better. Yeah. It, it has the, that has the effect that we're both looking for.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: All right. So we, before we wrap it up, I mean, I just had a couple interesting things you talked about cognitive functioning in your article The brain fog thing is, you know, something people are thinking about a lot.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I don't, you know, the brain fog, I'm not sure I've ever experienced that myself. So when people say that they've got brain fog, I'm not exactly sure what it means, but a lot of people say I've got brain fog and they mean they're having cognitive difficulty and it runs along with, especially it seems like chronic fatigue uh, and post-viral type things. And the long COVID people say that they've got brain fog Yep. And I think that they've they've found that uh, people with Alzheimer's cognitive def- decline and self diagnosed brain fog have higher levels of neuroinflammation when they look at them uh, look at that under you know a device they can find it
1: uh, as a chronic Lyme, you know a, a former chronic lyme sufferer for sure brain fog was my friend my constant companion I knew exactly what they meant and it makes a whole lot of sense to me that as the body responds is recovering from, or responding to, or reacting to an infection that, that has an ongoing effects in the immune system, or other ways we don't know that there are cognitive effects that you just can't think as well. And there, you know, there's some that interesting research that say, you know, explain pain goes into and such, where they talk about how different inflammatory cytokines increase our cognitive abilities and others reduce it. So the, you know, they the tendency being the more inflammatory things are. The, f- the worse our spatial memory is, the worse things like that are, and the more anti-inflammatory, the clearer and quicker our operations get. Mm-hmm. It's a generalization they play off of, but it's, it made a whole lot of sense for me having gone through that. Uh-huh. And air pollution. I don't want, want to miss that one. You mentioned that in your article as well.
2: Air pollution is just incredibly bad for you. It's, it's, un- it's unbelievable how, how, uh, many, how much research there is out there um, some of it very kind of interesting, some of it very kind of factoidy, like at, at, there's just there's so many different ways that they, they've tried to measure how it's bad. I think like, you know, like referees make um, uh, more mistakes on days with high air pollution and judges oh, get really? pushed more often in their <laughs> decisions and people don't do as well on tests when there's high air pollution. And then on population levels, you can find all sorts of health discrepancies based on how much air pollution there is. Yeah. But the cool thing about air pollution is it varies by day in certain cities. And then, so you can track certain types of things. Yeah, Uh, And then they've got, you know, certain, I I think they've got kind of a mechanistic understanding of how it kind of gets in there and crosses the blood brain barrier and causes the neuroinflammation. And um, yeah, it's not really for us massage therapists to be able to correct uh the air pollution but uh in the voting booth that's that's an important thing (laughs) to uh to get done and i suppose you know what that there are uh ways you can probably modify your local uh air air supply local
1: environment but certainly behavior like in the voting booth in the driver's seat or whatever it is you know the choices we make Mm
2: -hmm. yes but but i mean in your house you can get air filters and stuff like that uh i haven't looked into that too much but i but uh, I guess I concluded that my air is pretty healthy in my house right now. But I was thinking of getting one of those machines. You know, you're
1: in Seattle, huh? Yeah. So you got that great Puget Sound effect going on there and all that. Well, moisture. we get. Uh, I mean, it is. It is. Everything's a city. on fire. Yeah.
2: I mean, we we ha- we lucked out this year. We did not have that much smoke. How did you do? do what needed was it? Oh, it was awful. It was really bad this year. You I mean,
1: that in the four hundreds with Yeah, it was in the four like
0: hundreds. It was uh, it was the kind of thing like you know we're duct taping the windows and putting blankets on the, you know, in front of the doors and everything, and not going outside because it was it was really
2: bad. We were very so, bad here in Colorado too. Very yeah. bad.
1: So it's a, it's an ongoing and will be an ongoing continuing concern
2: you guys make the you guys make the homemade air filters with a box fan and a merv 13 <laughs> no.
0: i saw some some things like that on the web you know i've got Boy. some high you know high performance air filters in my office anyway because i have these parrots in there and they put out this dust that's really oh. bad uh for parrot. my respiratory um you know so i i gotta have this air filters running most of the time anyway
1: parrot yeah. down air removers yeah Good.
0: exactly so, well, yeah, uh,
1: maybe we should look for like an air filter company to be a podcast sponsor. Hey, there you like go. That. Yeah,
0: clean your life. What I'm telling you, pure. box
2: fan MERV that's thirteen cool. filter. Blow the fan through the filter. I did that last summer when we had a lot of smoke. The thing was like brown within within uh, you what? know two weeks, and I was like, that would be in my brain right now. That would be in so, your yeah, yeah brain
1: and elsewhere. What's a MERV thirteen filter? What is that?
2: Well, the, the air filters have different uh, filtering capacity. And wow. so you need to get up to like a, a eleven before you're catching the fine uh, particles that okay. from smoke. So it just so you know some 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 of the filters the, the kinds you have in your house are probably like a six or a seven because it takes a ton of air pressure to blow through it when it's really yeah. kind of dense. So that's
1: a, that's. But that's a also rating. what
2: it gets out all the dust particle the yeah, uh, smoke sure. particles.
1: Okay, everybody. Huh. This this episode was brought to you by Todd Hargrove <laughs> and his Merv thirteen. Plans
2: yeah. right off of YouTube. Go check it out. There's your side hustle, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Building air no, You can't hustle it because it's it's so easy to do homemade. You get a box fan, 20 bucks, the filters 10 bucks. Yeah. Go yes. to Home Depot and get some duct tape and put it together. Yeah.
0: Okay. Cool. All right. We'll do it.
1: Well, what else? What else do you want to make sure we touch in on? What are you know, what are your closing thoughts? That kind of thing, Todd.
2: Um well. You can find me at toddhargrove.substack.com.
1: All right. <laughs> There's one takeaway. Uh, that's one. But it's, I mean, it's been uh, it's been fun to talk to you and just hear your take on these things, of course. But again, just to start to get you know, deeper into this idea that every uh, thing going on with our clients has some sort of story behind it some sort of mechanism and they're even though they're complex sometimes the ways that people respond to them don't have to be
2: well, yeah to yeah, yeah well, simple simple solutions to complex problems that's a good phrase right
0: yeah what do you think Witt? all right well that sounds good well i think we can consider it um a wrap there for today then i think todd thank you again so much for coming to visit with us today and yes. and hang out and and uh, jump into some fascinating discussions here and uh hopefully we'll do it again sometime down the road as well
2: thank you very much for having me i enjoyed it
0: yeah and would uh, just like to remind everybody to check out todd's podcast it's a great um another great show that's out there better movement is the name of the podcast that's correct isn't it todd yeah yes and uh, also Put a plug in there for some of his other resources and things that are on the website, because there's some fascinating stuff in there. So make sure uh, you have a chance to to look at that stuff. So. Uh- And so, uh, all right, well, we'll wrap it up for the day today. We would like to mention, too, also that ABMP is proud to sponsor the Thinking Practitioner podcast, and ABMP membership gives massage therapists and body workers exceptional liability insurance, numerous discounts, and great resources to help you thrive, like their ABMP podcast, which is available at abmp.com forward slash podcast or wherever else you happen to listen.
1: And even if you're not a member, you can get free access to Massage and Bodywork magazine, where Whitney and I are frequent contributors and special offers for thinking practitioner listeners at abmp.com thinking.
0: So thank you again to all our sponsors. You can stop by our sites for handouts, show notes, transcripts, and extras. You can find that over at my site at academyofclinicalmassage.com. And Till, where can people find that on yours?
1: mineadvanced-trainings.com if there are questions or things you want to hear us talk about, guests you want us to invite, email us at info at or look for us on social media just under our names. Mine is Till Lukow. What's your name, Whitney Lowe? Uh,
0: today, my name is Whitney Lowe. You can find me there uh, as well under that. So if you will also please take some time, rate us on Apple Podcasts as it does help other people find the show. And you can hear us on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you happen to listen And please do share the word and do tell a friend. And of course, as always, if you're unable to find us in any of those locations, you can tune your tea kettle whistle to Concert C, and you will hear us in the residual steam off of that. Thanks again, everybody, for being with us here. Todd, thank you again. Great to speak with you all, and we'll see you again here in a couple weeks. Thanks, guys. Steamy. Thank you.